I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. During each podcast, one of my esteemed colleagues or I will be talking with changemakers who are using entrepreneurial tactics to solve big problems. Today, my guest is Paul Revel, a well-respected and accomplished leader in education. Paul is a professor of educational policy at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is also the founding director of the Education Redesign Lab at Harvard, which is studying six cities as they shift their education and community strategies to be student-centric, driven by the needs of the whole child. Previously, Paul served as the Massachusetts Secretary of Education for almost five years under Governor DeBall Patrick. He also chaired the State Board of Education, founded the Ed Policy Think Tank, the Rennie Center, and co-founded the Massachusetts Business Alliance for Education. Paul has been involved in implementing major Massachusetts education policies, including Common Core Adoption and Mass Core. He has also served as a teacher and principal in two urban alternative high schools. And you can often catch Paul's educational commentary on Boston Public Radio and WGBH. Paul, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Joe. Good to be here. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I feel very lucky to be talking with you about MassCore today because, well, everyone says you are the father of MassCore. And no, that, I don't know about that, but I'm uh, I'm proud of MassCore, and uh, it's a good thing to be talking about. So I'm glad to be here. Oh, well, it's perfect because you're definitely the expert. Um, you're instrumental in creating this framework and uh, in getting many cities and towns in Massachusetts to adopt it. Can you talk first about its inception? So you were the chair of the board of education under Duval Patrick at the that's time. Right. Is that right? That's right. So when take I, us back. <clears throat> what was happening? Well, we were we were in a time nationally where there was a lot of reconsideration of what we're doing in education and how we're preparing our young people for a 21st century world, where many of the jobs were going to require an unprecedented level of skill and knowledge uh, relative to what we've been giving students up until that time. So we were in an era where standards were changing, and the standard for and of entering the economy and being successful in the economy was increasing. And we had raised standards in Massachusetts in terms of our Education Reform Act of 1993 and the curriculum frameworks. Um, I was on the Board of Education at that time as well, and we uh, worked hard to implement the spirit and um, letter of the law with respect to the uh, Education Reform Act of 1993. But those those uh, frameworks were just beginning to take hold, and we MCAS was just beginning to kick in, and right. we had a 10th grade standard. And so we felt we needed to do whatever we could in order to clarify to parents and to students what they would need to know and be able to do on their way to college. In, in Massachusetts, were you using the your metric? Was that state of math? Versus other states, were you looking at this from a global perspective? If I think back to 2007, this is when we started to kind of really look at ourselves and the way that we were educating kids against the way other countries were educating kids. We were becoming a much more global economy. The internet was enabling all of that. Yeah, no, we were. We had tried very hard in this in the setting of standards for Massachusetts and building the MCAS to be sort of internationally aware and not be parochial. Yeah. Um, we also, you know, the, the whole point of, of standards and statewide testing was to set a standard that would be the same for everybody. 
So it wouldn't vary district to district. We have 351 cities and towns and even more school districts in Massachusetts. So we wanted a common yardstick to be able to measure performance. But at the same time, um, we wanted to be clear to people in very concrete terms what courses they should take if they wanted to be ready for college. Mm-hmm. And we, we, the feeling at the time was post-secondary education is no longer really... Um, Uh, something that's optional if you want to participate in the 21st century economy. It's something that's essential and that all of our students should really aspire to do some level of post-secondary education. And if they were going to do that, then their course-taking requirements or expectations in high school ought to match those of the uh, admitting standards in institutions of higher education. So the Mass Corps was an attempt to bring those into alignment, to say that if the University of Massachusetts was requiring X, Y, and Z course for entry, then we ought to be clear in all of our school systems to have X, Y, and Z course available and to encourage all of our students to take it. And when we talk about all of our students, if I think about a city like Boston, were all did all students do all students have the intention of college as the outcome and we're trying to align a set of standards to make sure that they get there and make sure they have the right roadmap to get there or is it an intention that we have for students well i think it's an intention of education reform going all the way back to 1993 yeah. we we um in you know in massachusetts business alliance when we wrote a paper that turned out to be the seminal document in framing the 1993 reform. It was called Every Child a Winner. Mm -hmm. And when we teed up education reform in Massachusetts, we said we have now in in the late 20th, early 21st century to educate all students to a high level and all means all. So that was clearly the aspiration of education reform was to get everyone there. Now, it is true that not not every student or not every family um, realized that really the, um, the entry card for participation in the 21st century um, economy was going to be post-secondary education. Right. So school systems, school leaders, community leaders were going to have to work to make it clear to families what it was that was expected. And MassCore was just one more effort. It was kind of the icing on the cake that had started with standards, become the MCAS, and now we had Mass Core to articulate to families, here's what it's going to take. Here's what you're going to have to do in order to take the right courses to be ready for college. And in the, tell me essentially what is Mass Core? Is Mass Core saying you need to take these different courses in order to graduate? Or does it go into detail about the quality of the course and how the course is taught? Is there curriculum attached to the standards? Or is it more just these are the credits you need to have in order to, to graduate? Well, in the first instance, it was just a clear clarion call for a set of courses. Um, Massachusetts is very minimalist in terms of what it expects school districts to do as a matter of state law. We believe in local control, and graduation requirements are typically set at the local school committee level. And the state required at the time of Mass Corps simply a course in physical education and a course in U.S. history. That was it. Other states are much more specific in terms of what they expect. So all of this had to be voluntary. So it was put out in a way in which we articulated a set of courses. So there were uh, a certain number of math courses, a certain number of English courses, U.S. history courses, arts courses, you know, foreign language courses, et cetera. Uh, Again, 
tracking with what uh, state of the art was in terms of uh, admissions expectations. As time went on, the Department of Education in implementing this began to make it clear because, of course, you can label a course anything you want, Mm. but it has to be high standards and high content in order for the course to be worthwhile. So the department got clearer on what it was that was expected. But again, it was all voluntary compliance. Yeah, so that's interesting to me that that it's voluntary compliance. So why, why would the state say this part is voluntary, but it's guidance that we hope you adopt, but MCAS scores for 10th graders, that's mandatory? Well, you know, that's an interesting uh, sort of policy distinction and a political distinction in some respects. Um, Anytime you make a mandate from the state level about what has to happen in actual physical form in a district, in other words, you have to offer a course that you might not have offered before, Mm -hmm. it becomes a state mandate. Okay. And you, uh, if you're going to mandate something at the state level, you have to fund it at the state level. So legislators are typically mindful of avoiding unfunded mandates because they know they'll be taken to court in order to fund them. So Mm. we didn't want to say to districts, you know, some districts, for example, would have said, well, if we're going to offer everybody a foreign language, we're going to have to have more foreign language teachers than we currently have. And you, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is going to have to pay for that because we didn't have them up until now. And um, while that was a relatively minor number of districts, it was a reality. And so the Commonwealth, I think, took the position that at least at the outset of this work, until we find that it's a significant obstacle, we're going to make it clear because most districts offered almost all of the courses that we were um, prescribing, mm. though they didn't necessarily offer them to all of their students. Mm. Okay, so it, that's another twist in this is yeah. that... You, this All was, students have to graduate with these. Well, this, the set of standards. this was the aspiration of the policy. So right. it, was a, it was a policy that really had two targets. One was to target districts to say, you've got to have the capacity to offer these courses. Mm-hmm. And number two, to districts to encourage and change the behavior of students to say, students need to opt in to take these courses. Okay. So if the district never told students there was such a thing as mass corps, a student would never have heard of it, would never have thought about aligning in that way. Right. If a district didn't make an effort to get this information out to parents and say to parents, if you actually want your child to be able to support himself uh, yeah. later in life, yeah. he is going to need to go to college. If he wants to go to college, he should take these mass courses. Well, that's incredible to me because that that doesn't happen. I, I mean, I'm not aware that that marketing happens to parents. It No, it doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah. It presumably was what the guidance function in our schools was set up to do in the the first place. Right. But now huh. guidance ratios have gotten so far out of control right. that guidance counselors can't possibly reach all the students. So that kind of information is catch as catch can. If you happen to be in a college-going family, well, you'll get that message. Yeah. If you happen to be in a family that even if they weren't college-going themselves are in a work environment where they understand that to be the case, you've got to take certain courses if you want to get into college, then you'll know it. But if you're in a family that isn't exposed to that yeah. uh, by reason of, of chance, accident, or or accident of birth or whatever, then uh, only the school district is really in a position to inform you of that. Right. And school districts hadn't necessarily built the capacity to do it, though an amazing number of districts around the Commonwealth, they managed to get that done. Yeah, absolutely. No, so this has become a much bigger growing conversation at Boston Public Schools. You know, and there's this notion, there's a working group now set up around uh, adopting mass courts being explored deeply. Why do you think 
Boston Public Schools has been so slow to adopt this framework? Well, I'm not sure. I, it, it, it's hard for me to know, not having been on the ground in Boston as this was done. You know, for a long time in state education policy, Boston considered itself exceptional. Mm-hmm. In other words, they were kind of sui generis. There was only one Boston. We are so different from every other district. The policy for us ought to be different. So mm-hmm. we pay attention to state policy when we want to, and we ignore it when we don't. <laughs> that actually changed in 1993 when we set standards for everybody. Everybody had to take the MCAS. The superintendent at the time, Tom Pazon, embraced that approach. Mm-hmm. Boston mm-hmm. came into the fold. Well, it helps to drive uh, alignment, I would think. Yeah, no, definitely helped to drive alignment. Yeah. But this this now, you know, by the time we get to 2007, that's 14 years later. Right. And and things have moved along. Uh, you know, I, I think there was a feeling that uh, there may be some implementation issues that would be difficult mm-hmm. in Boston. There may be some students who are different than standard mainstream students. But are we that far off? Because this is like just saying we're requiring X number of math classes, X number of history classes, X number of science classes, right? So are we, are we is it that far off in, in these schools that, that well, adopting this would be difficult? I, I, I doubt it, but yeah. there was there was a, um, you know, there was a, on the one hand, an admirable um, sort of strategy of of creating a lot of autonomy and flexibility for for um, individual schools to define their own approaches to education. Right. But on the other hand, I think there was some relinquishing of responsibility. That is to say, mm. Um, mm. we're. I, I've always argued, and I think the Massachusetts reforms uh, illustrate this. That, that a sort of tight, loose philosophy of education reform, um, a decentralization of control ought to work. In other words, if you're tight and clear on the what you want to achieve, you can be loose and flexible on how you achieve it. In Boston, um, right. we now have, as I understand it, uh, 33 high schools with 30 different sets of graduation requirements. All right, that's what I learned. To me, to me, that's being flexible about the what, yeah, and and not about the how, and so I think uh, Boston needs to be much clearer on what we're trying to achieve. In other words, at a minimum, at a high minimum, what is it that every Boston student ought to know and be able to do, and be clear on that, both in terms of not just of the MCAS, which is clear mm-hmm. at a state level, but also in terms of course taking requirements. Is, is there pushback because of flexibility? Do do Mass Core, if you were to adhere to Mass Core standards, does that take up the day? Is there room for it, it would take up license. some substantial proportion. There are there are electives included in Mass Corps, so it's yeah. um that's true. And there, you know, there's there's pushback that our kids can't really do this. And I, I don't usually buy that argument because I've heard it many times before. For right. example, when we started ed reform, all the vocational technical um associations came forward and said, We can't do this. This doesn't apply to our kids. You can't have high standards for them. They're exceptional. They're, yeah. they're not really up to the task. And we said, uh, again, I was on the board at the time, we said, too bad, you got to figure out a way to do it. Right. Sure enough, 20 years later, they're doing better on MCAS than the comprehensive high schools. Yeah, they figured out a way to do it, even though they had different approaches at the time. So I think uh, where there's a will, there's a way, and there ought to be a will because this is what kids need to be successful. This is what they need to get into college. Well, so, okay, so that's interesting. So, so because that was my other question is, um, you know, in looking at the standards, it seems like there are no standards around emotional, social, emotional care and feeding, and 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 the require. And, and it seems to me too that you've got lots of students who don't end up on the college pathway 
because of other things. That's right. You know, not that they didn't take the math course, but because no, they absolutely. haven't shown up for school. Yep. And so, and so, was there discussion of that? Why, why is that not part of policy that that um, we prescribe a a piece of this that is dealing with kind of the social emotional? Well, policy? I mean, now you're now you're entering into my uh, bailiwick and the work <laughs> that we do at the Education Redesign Lab to say right. that you know helping young people be successful. Um, uh, requires a strong, effective school system, but a strong, effective school system is only necessary. It's not sufficient to right. provide all the ingredients to make young people successful. So as we saw, for example, in the recent Boston Globe uh, feature on valedictorians, mm-hmm. um, even the most successful students in an urban school system, as they go on to college, face unique challenges that have a lot to do with the conditions of their lives outside of school and um, uh, only partially to do with their educational preparation. Many people were quick to blame the Boston Public Schools for the um, comparative lack of success of valedictorians from Boston compared with those from suburban districts. But when you really sort of bore down on those stories and look closely, many of the reasons why students failed to... um, Uh, proceed through college as effectively as possible had to do with external life circumstances. And the same is true in elementary and secondary education. We know that kids who suffer from trauma and have adverse childhood experiences and suffer toxic stress, lack of nutrition, healthcare, mental health services, stable housing, a feeling of safety and security, these children are always going to have more formidable challenges in achieving uh, than students who can take many of those factors for granted. So uh, we, we haven't been good at uh, factoring that into our measurement and accountability systems. In part, we've been... Um, We've been sort of strong on our rhetoric and saying we want to have a system in which uh, everybody succeeds. Uh, We want to have a system in which demography isn't destiny. Mm. But you really have to construct a system that makes that work, makes that happen. And that's not a one-size-fits-all system. Knowing what you know about um, being in government in the state of Massachusetts, could you see a world where education and healthcare are actually working together? on this sort of thing? I can foresee that world. In fact, when I was in government, we had something called the Child and Youth Development Cabinet mm-hmm. uh, that Governor Patrick asked uh, myself uh, as Secretary of Education and the Secretary of Health and Human Services to chair jointly. Right. And we began work with that commission uh, that helped, for example, bring employees of HHS, mm-hmm. the, the healthcare sector, into schools in places like Springfield right. so that we um, provided uh, the, the support to school districts. I mean, the number one issue I hear from school superintendents these days is mental health issues right? Well, that they can't too. cope yes. with uh, within the school system because they have a limited number of guidance counselors, social workers, and psychologists. So yes, there absolutely ought to be more integrated work between health and human services and education. Well, and it's not only that. It does seem like from the data that we've seen, that bar report that um, or the report that bar commissioned uh, from Parthenon uh, last year, it seemed that at least in open enrollment schools, that every year that you stay in an open re- enrollment school, you become more and more likely to have early warning indicators and and other issues like lack of attendance or not you know dropping out of school and these sorts of things. It's almost as if the mental health piece of it becomes infectious. As, as uh, well, absolutely. And the, and the capacity of the 
school system, and it's not that the school system really ought to be a, a primary mental health care provider. No, completely. But but what limited resources they have are unevenly distributed. Right. Uh, my colleague Mandy Savitz Romer was telling me yeah. the other day of looking, you know, school by school at the open enrollment schools and seeing how widely variable. Uh, the number of guidance counselors, social workers, and psychologists was from school to school in a seemingly random pattern. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, I know. She's, she's got some very interesting work going on as well. Um, well, okay, so to go back to MassCore, although I do, I do, it does make me just keep wondering, you know, MassCore, it seems to me like, should absolutely be adopted, but then, you know, it's almost like there should be follow-on. There should be this other additive layer that pretty well, quickly yeah, gets I, pushed into the systems in some yeah. way, even if it's, you know voluntary adoption, but some guidance that comes from a look at, from both healthcare and education, you know, combined yeah. to. Well, what you're pushing up against, Jill, I think is this, this um, notion of the separate silos that we have and yeah. in, the, you know, in our world of human services. And for a long time in education, we've operated in isolation right. and we've had this sort of notion that education's all about the three R's. It's all about instruction. Right. It's all about teaching and learning and all these other things uh, happen outside, and there are other entities, uh, Health and Human Services or Parks Department or law enforcement will take care of all these other things. Families will do all this. And more and more we see as we try to reform schools and as we've concentrated on boosting school performance with respect to instruction and learning, that these other factors, there are social determinants of education success and the absence of those social determinants get in the way of young people being successful, but we're not really organized to break down those silos and begin to work together collectively as a community to support young people coming to school genuinely ready to learn. We can optimize instruction all we want. We can have the best curriculum and best teachers in the world, right. but if the child isn't there or can't concentrate due to being hungry or beaten at home or feeling unsafe on the way to school, then uh, the best instruction in the world isn't going to make any difference. So if we're really seriously committed to this notion of all means all and getting all of our kids ready to participate in our 21st century economy and democracy, then we're going to have to wrap around the families and the schools and the children in ways that make it possible to have the same privileges, opportunities, and supports that are most affluent. So, so this is what all of your latest work that is, is. That's right. And what's interesting to me about your latest work is that it's it's all driven from the mayor. So the mayor is at the center, at the core of, of um, guiding this kind of full circle, 360 view, student-centric, child-centric view of how to optimize the community. That's right. To fortify the child and then also to make sure that the child succeeds in school. That's It's very interesting. And, and do you think that's actually where we'll get the most leverage as a state is mayor by mayor? Well, I, we, we sort of targeted mayors as the top leaders in this because, A, we felt this is quintessentially local work. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's not likely to happen at the state level. It's definitely not going to happen at the federal level. So mm -hmm. this is a local concern. And we have great confidence in the spirit of, of something that's lately been called the new localism, of the <coughs> capacity of local communities and local people, despite their ideological differences, to come together and solve persistent problems if you array them around a table in the right way and provide adequate resources to make a start and support their efforts together. So we wanted to say that one of the fallacies 
over time has been to attribute too much responsibility for youth success to schools. Schools are important, necessary, have to be there, but whether kids make it or don't make it, as in the valedictorian story, has mm-hmm. more to do with the whole community right. than it does just with the schools. So we don't want to say schools have to solve housing problems, mental health problems, right. health problems, nutrition problems, all these kinds of things, which incidentally we've been saying for a long time and just cramming them in right. and school people are good people and they say, you know, bring it on, we need to do these things, but they don't really have the capacity. Their capacity has been unchanged. they see the impact on kids every they day. They see the impact so they and they want, want to, to do something. Yeah, so we've, we've said it's, it's going to take more than that. As others have said, it's going to take a village. Mm-hmm. And so what does that actually mean? What does the architecture of that look like? Well, the person most likely to be able to bring the whole community to the table around children and youth issues is typically the mayor. So when we started our By All Means initiative, we did a little intelligence gathering and went around the country looking for mayors who had that belief that my community can't be successful unless my kids are ultimately successful in entering the 21st century economy and being good citizens. And to make children successful, it's going to take more than just a successful school system. It's going to take a supportive community full of support and opportunity for young people. So let's then, let's say that we get there with BPS and BPS adopts mass core. It's really, based on what you're saying, just it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, it, it just clarifies sort of academic expectations. There's a lot of work to do once you you pick MCOR. First of all, they've got to be robust courses. Mm-hmm. They've got to be high standards courses, mm-hmm. and that's a that's a prerequisite. But then... <clears throat> and are there are people, do you think there are, there are towns and cities who already have adopted these yeah, kinds of standards? Yeah, who have good models, and, and I'm quite sure there are courses that fulfill that uh, those criteria right here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So we know how to do that piece. But then the other thing is going to be to have to create conditions that make it possible for our young people to be prepared to do that kind of work and to be successful when they're put, you know, they're, they're pitted against high standards mm-hmm. in courses like that. And that takes more of the 360 degree wraparound kind of approach that we've been talking about. So, and if you were going to hire a consumer marketing team to go after parents and to target them with certain messaging that says, hey, you should have this expectation for your child's education in the city of Boston, and, and these should be the outcomes, what, 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 would, what would the components of that be? Well, I mean, I find remarkable similarity among the expectations or aspirations that parents have for the young people. They want them to grow up and be able to support themselves mm-hmm. and support a family. Right. They want them to be good citizens. Right. They want them to be heads of families with all the values and character traits we associate with that. They, if they thought about it, would want them to be lifelong learners because they, you know, the world is changing. They're going to change jobs so many times. The problems that the world faces are ever more complex and changing as we go along. So if you have those sort of challenges in mind, I think what it takes is somebody to say to parents, um, we, you know, in order for your child to be successful in this economy, these are the things that need to happen. I'd put business people out there because you hear this a lot in the business community. Right. Have business people come up and say, if you want your child to have a job, in my company in the 21st century, mm, uh, this is what uh, they're going to need to do in order to be ready for that. Right, that's um, great. 
Or I'd put college, um, you know, college professors or college admissions people out there and say, well, if you want your child to be able to get the benefits of being part of this institution and being successful here, here's what it's going to look like. I go to the end user of the education system yeah. and, and talk with them. And, 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 you know, obviously there's a spectrum of students and a spectrum of both capabilities and backgrounds of students who are in the Boston public school system. We often talk about like the very most basic baseline that the system should be judged on is whether or not kids can leave the school system knowing how to independently access food, shelter, and love. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's certainly basic, but I think, I think we have a, I think we have a... But think of all the things you'd be able to do if you could, if you could successfully access those three things. Yeah, I, I agree. But right now, uh, in order to access those three things, you're going to need a fairly high level of education if you're going to do it by yourself. Right. right. Uh, and, and so the, the question is, are all of our students capable of a fairly high level of education? And the answer is, you know, by virtue of birth, yes. By virtue of the normal human condition and normal brain power, they are. Mm-hmm. But the circumstances of life frequently get in the way of all of our young children achieving at that level. So the question then is, how do we adapt our systems of education, child support, and development to meet them where they are and give them what they need in life, inside and outside of school, in order for them to be successful? If we persist in just a one-size-fits-all approach here, we're not going to get there. Equity is not the same thing as equality. And our our greatest aspiration is equality, you know, and and, uh, that's not going to do it because some kids need more than others. If you come into kindergarten and you've heard 50 million fewer words than the child sitting next to you, well, the system's going to have to adapt to catch you up in terms of literacy and literacy readiness. And if it doesn't adjust that way, we're not going to get there. Yeah. So there's a new superintendent headed into the Boston Public School System. That's right. Right. Very hopeful moment in Boston. It's a very hopeful moment. And so if you were to give one piece of advice to her and to the mayor of Boston, what would it be? I I think to the new superintendent, I'd say, uh, listen carefully, uh, spend some time doing asset mapping. This is an incredibly rich community, and I don't just mean financially, but that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's rich in, in intellectual resources, cultural resources, community resources, education resources. <clears throat> um, be careful to uh, craft strategy that has some coherence to it, because if you're not careful in Boston, you wind up saying yes to everybody who wants to help, and you're doing a million projects, but it's not having any impact because it's scattered all over the place. Right. Um, get together with the mayor because I think the mayor, the superintendent, and the school committee need to be on the same page with a theory of what the problem is in Boston in terms of what's holding back education achievement and a theory of action in terms of what we need to do about it. Get on the same page. Stay on the same page. The mayor should step back, let the superintendent lead the mayor at the same time, uh, should be the political leader on this and the main um, sort of um, promoter of the educational strategy that's agreed upon uh, by the community, by the school committee, by the superintendent and the mayor. Uh, and then we should push forward with yeah. uh, with logic and with consistency and with a uh, uh, you know with a with a good ear for the community, but at the same time not being timid about dissent. Because you cannot bring about change in any kind of a school system, small or large, uh, without 
making some people angry. So some people are going to be angry if you make changes and improvements, and you've got to have some tolerance for that. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. I think the clarity that you provide around MassCore is very helpful, and um, I look forward to talking to you again more about the work that you're doing in the six cities that you're working in. My pleasure, Jill. Pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Paul Revel. I love that he is currently expanding on the work he did around MassCore to include the needs of the whole child. You can learn more about this important work in his new book, Broader, Bolder, Better. Next week, I will talk with our director of education, Oren Gutlerner, and we will peel back the onion on MassCore and talk about the importance of rigor and coursework with these requirements to ensure that the, all BPS students graduate from school ready for college-level courses or a fulfilling job. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please like it and share it with your friends and others in your community who might find it interesting.